Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content director at Theopolis. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Those who participate in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. Today, we're joined by Jeff Myers and Alistair Roberts as we continue our walk through the book of James. Last time, we began to see uh, James fleshing out some more examples of what it means to be a doer of the word, remaining unstained from the world, visiting orphans and widows, and not giving um, any preferential treatment to the rich in the assembly. And in verse 8 of chapter 2, James is continuing uh, that thought as he says this, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So again, these persecuted Christians are called to obey their royal law and not showing partiality to those who are in their midst. And then uh, in a few verses later, he's going to be calling them to show mercy because mercy triumphs over judgment. I'd like to discuss what this royal law is that he mentions there in verse eight. If you fulfill the royal law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin. What is this royal law that he's calling them back to? The command to love your neighbor as yourself is one that we first encounter in the Old Testament itself. So we have Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. There is increasing emphasis within the New Testament upon the integrity of the law. And this is something that James will return to on a number of occasions. The fact that the law is a unity, that it all hangs together and it flows from key principles. So we can think about the two great commandments, the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second, your neighbor is yourself. This is something that, again, is a prominent element of Jesus' own teaching when he's questioned about what the greatest commandment is. We might think that his answer would be, well, maybe the greatest commandment is you shall not murder or you shall have no other gods before me. It's one of those commandments that's picked out from the 600 or so commandments that is seen as being on a higher level than all the others. But the way that our Lord sees the commandments is as a unity that can be summed up in greater commandments that serve as the condensed principles from which everything else flows. So the greatest commandment is not, in fact, uh, just one commandment among several. It's a commandment in which other, from which other commandments can be seen as the refractions. And this commandment to love your neighbor as yourself is one that serves a similar role as the second of the great two great commandments. It's that which in particular sums up the second table of the law, as we call it, commandments six to ten of the Ten Commandments. And that emphasis, I think, is seen in part in the way that the teaching of Christ concerning the law takes on themes that are already present within the Pentateuch and foregrounds, first of all, the emphasis upon the heart and the law flowing from the heart. So it's the positive principle of love rather than just the negative principle of do not do this, do not do the other. It's the positive principle that responds in part to the recognition delivered by the 10th commandment that these are primarily matters of the heart. And then 
it's the recognition that even within the law itself, there are these foundational principles that condense the rest of the law. So we have in Deuteronomy chapter six, loving the Lord your God with your whole being. And then in Leviticus chapter 19, this other principle, these are things that become far more prominent within the teaching of Christ than they were in the Old Testament, even though they are present within the Old Testament. Another thing to notice is the way that Jesus talks at several points about giving his people a new commandment. Um, think about, um, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. That pattern of love for neighbor is one that Christ sets for us. And he gives us this as a sort of new commandment. It's been there before from the beginning, as we see in um, 1 John. But it's also something that has come to a greater emphasis. It's come to a greater expression and it's been lived out concretely in Christ's own work. And so we have the worked example that we are now called to follow. And so in that respect, it seems to me that the royal law is referring to Christ in his regal authority, delivering this commandment that sums up the law of the Old Testament, that fulfills the law of the Old Testament. This is not just avoiding certain sins. It's the positive principle by which the law is not just, the boxes aren't just ticked, but it's, as it were, the positive reality that corresponds to the negative prohibitions. So it's, as it were, the, the foot that fits the glass slipper of the law, and that being fulfilled by living according to the pattern that Christ set us and by the way of love. That connects back up to verse 1 in chapter 2. So just what you said, Alistair, that uh, we're to hold to the faith of our, or the faithfulness of our Lord, Jesus, the Lord of glory, or the glorious one. So if you really fulfill that law of our Lord, the Lord's law, the kingly law, then you'll love your neighbor as yourself. You'll be doing well. and You won't show partiality. Um, I do think it's rather interesting. I've noticed over the years when I ask people to think about what it means, what the phrase to live like a king means. Um, and I think everybody's first thoughts or even what they say is something like, well, if I were to live like a king, I'd have ease and luxury and power that's associated with royalty. Um, and I, I do believe that that means that our minds have been stained by worldly, unbiblical conceptions of kingship, not denying that a king has authority and power, but the question is, how does he use it? So James says that the royal law, as Alistair just as, as said, is about love, is about self-effacing love for others, and also love for those that aren't necessarily lovable in the world, in the society in which they live. I do believe that th we get a glimpse of why the community that was formed by Jesus and following Jesus are targeted by the persecutors especially the reigning political Jewish and Roman authorities, eventually the Roman authorities, not here, but eventually, uh, because worldly political powers predicated upon the assumption that everyone within the authority structure will play by the same rules 
and accept the present governmental arrangement, whatever it might be, self-evident, it's comprehensive. But if within that political structure, you have this tightly defined stratification of social classes and these power games that are going on, and even if there is charity and loyalty, it's usually based on a complex and hidden motives about benefits and the exchange of benefits and getting something for what you give. And if a community arises within that kind of set of values, that that uh, structure, that system, a community arises that rejects that kind of life, that kind of partiality, especially partiality toward the powerful, and begins to intentionally love others without regard to personal gain, without regard to whatever benefits uh, might be bestowed on them because of how they act toward those in authority, then the very existence of a community would be a public repudiation of the most fundamental assumptions about political structures, okay? Uh, this is the trans transvaluation of values kind of thing. Um, so the, the Christian community is a re- renunciation of the politics of favoring some men because they're able to guarantee safety and comfort. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and as I said in my comments on this, it's the political equivalent of a little boy crying out that the emperor has no clothes. So uh, here are these Christians not crying out that the emperor has no clothes, but living out uh, an alternate way of life that infuriates uh, the Jewish political leaders because they've bought into the whole pagan understanding of how power is supposed to function within the community. They've aped, they've mimicked Rome, and Jesus is giving them a new way. And Jesus' community, his faithful church is supposed to also be living out that new way. And so you, you decline, you decline currying favor of the rich and powerful. And then you also refuse to buckle at the threat of death and violence. And by, by those two, two behaviors, you break the power of both the carrot and the stick that every human empire has always used to sustain its existence. And so rejecting partiality and going for love is actually about a mature way of bringing in the kingdom of God and the justice of God. Uh, And, and, and it's, and it's, it's exactly what the church did. It's exactly what brought down not only Judaism, but also the Roman empire eventually. Within the teaching of the old Testament, the, law to love your neighbor as yourself is particularly given in the context of the one close to you with whom you have uh, an issue, some sort of relational tension, some sort of grudge, or um, you have some beef with that person. In the teaching of Christ, it's very much about the enemy is the chief character who presents um, the context within which to present this charge to give um, love to your neighbor. The enemy is to be treated as the neighbor, the one who's close to you, who has a grudge or some sort of tension or antagonism with you is to be treated as a neighbor. But here, the emphasis is very much upon the 
treating people as neighbors who are of a very different social standing, who don't have anything to offer you, or people with whom you might be at social odds. And so that partiality is another thing that um, the commandment to love neighbor pushes against. So we've seen in the case of the Old Testament, it's the command to love neighbor pushes against holding of grudges and vendettas and being unforgiving in our attitude. In the teaching of Christ, for instance, at the end of Matthew chapter five, it's um, it's against the attitude of vengeance and antagonism against one's enemies. And here it's very much against the attitude of partiality that sees those people who are most like us, who offer the most to us um, socially or um, politically or in terms of social status, whatever it is. Those are the people that we need to be very we need to be very wary of partiality in those situations. So the commandment of loving your neighbor is one that has a number of areas where we really feel its bite. We feel its bite where we have a situation of antagonism with someone close to us or where there's someone who is an enemy of us who's seeking our ill and yet we're still called to love them. And then also in situations where we are um, faced with someone who might jeopardize our social standing if we associate with them, um, how, whoever that might be. We're called to love in all of those situations. And there's something uncalculating about this. Partiality and um, antagonism, grudge bearing, whatever it is, these are often about human calculations. When I bear a grudge against someone, I'm wanting to keep track of what that person has done against me and to keep accounts and settle matters with that person by my own violence or action. In the case of the person who's the enemy, I want to class that person as an opponent and I want to settle scores and to um, win over that opponent. In the case of the person who's of different social standing, I'm very aware of my um, social credibility, my social position, and I'm wanting to calculate what will it cost me to associate with this person? What do I gain by um, cozying up to this figure? And in all of these cases, there's a challenge to us to abandon that sort of calculating approach to relationships, where we're trying to gain our own advancement or our own success and victory over others by our own means, and to put things in the hands of the Lord. And as we love our neighbor, and follow the example of Christ as we act in a way that is according to his law and confident in his action on, be, on our behalf, we can forsake all these calculating approaches to relationships. And as a result, we're freed to do things that are uncalculating that can lead to surprising results. Yeah, this is all, this is all a call to follow Christ in his example, not not just following him as someone separated, uh, separate from us as uh, someone who's up in heaven that we want to live like, but he being our head and we being his body, we are his representatives here on earth. And you see this very clearly in the way that Christ lived his life. He remained unstained from the world and yet loved widows and orphans, yet he, he did not show partiality, but was spending time and blessing uh, everyone, children, uh, prostitutes, tax collectors, all of these different kinds of people. 
there's there's a lot of uh, interesting talk right now about it's kind of subtle, but on social media you'll see people involved in this discussions, the modern discussions about masculinity and manhood, talking about being a king, and often those things revolve around stature, uh, different ways of living, how to fight well, um, all of those things, which are which are very important. I think those things are important, but what can often be neglected is, uh, as Jeff was saying, to live like a king in this world, to follow the king and live like a king means to also show no partiality, to serve those who are despised by the world, to do the things in secret that matter to the Lord, but may not matter in the eyes of of the culture, to get our hands dirty with serving uh, the least of these and not seeking the honor of those who are seemingly important in the culture. That's a more full picture of what it means to to live like a king. It definitely means uh, being fully biblically masculine or feminine. That does not go against serving those who are weak and broken and are less attractive and who don't have anything to give back to us at all. Um, Those who are despised, um, all of these things go together in what it means to be a royal ambassador of, of Jesus in the world. So in verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Um, that's a challenging passage here. I, I think what happens, unfortunately, I, I, and, and this is not necessarily a terrible application of this passage, but I don't think it really fits the context. Now, what we read this, and we think what James means here is that by keeping the whole law, someone is not keeping every jot and tittle of the Torah, or someone who is, you know, violating in his heart or mind this or that in relation to any of the commandments, and that we use that evangelistically as a matter of establishing the depravity of man or, you know, the person's need for Christ and salvation. James is not doing that here. He's speaking to the Christian community. This is not an evangelistic text. And I do believe here that the whole law that he's talking about is uh, the summary of the law, love your neighbor as yourself, that he just quoted. And they're keeping that, you know, they're loving they're loving people, but they're breaking it in this one point with regard to their persecutors, with, with regard to the rich. And that means they're accountable for all of it. The connection is pretty clear in here with uh, like the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. You've heard it was said, love your neighbor as your, and hate your enemy. This is almost directly applicable to what's going on in the communities that James is addressing. Uh, But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. And he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? This is the calculation that uh, Alistair was talking about that goes on in these other Gentile and pagan communities. Don't even the tax collectors do that? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't the Gentiles do that? You therefore must be mature, must be perfect, teleos, as your heavenly father is mature. So what James is 
addressing here is keeping the love law, which is in a sense, the whole of it. It's all about that. Not just with regard to brothers and sisters, and it's, but also when it comes to the poor and the, the enemies of the church. And if you fail in that, then you're accountable for all of it. I don't know what you guys think of that, but I, that seems to make sense to me. Yes, I think so. I think another thing that, um, going back to what I was talking about earlier, about the indivisibility of the law, when we think of the law being fulfilled in love, it's not as if we can have, um, love isn't something that can easily be parceled out to different commandments. There is a sense that all the commandments hang together. And so it's like that unifying light that can be refracted into different um, wavelengths. We can see different aspects of it. But fundamentally, this is a unity, this posture of love. And so if there is this um, lack of love or this failure of the um, keeping of this royal law that holds everything together, then it indicates that the whole law is being failed. We're not, it's not as if we can compartmentalize a departure from the way of love in the way that you might compartmentalize mentally compartmentalize the law seeing it okay there are 600 odd different laws and we can i may have obeyed these 500 i'm shaky on these 50 and i've definitely gone against these other 50 that's not how we can think about it it's impossible to view it that way when you failed in one part it has implications for everything else because it's a unity and once i think that point comes across a lot of other things follow and we begin to see that there is this constant interplay between commandments in the Old Testament. One of the things that I often recommend that people do is read through the book of Deuteronomy from chapter 6 to 26, recognizing that those chapters are summarizing the commandments in order. So there's a series of chapters dealing with the first commandment, then with the second, and then each one of them refracting some facets of one of the 10 words. And the more that we look at that, that, those refractions, the more that we can see that as they expound the meaning of those particular commandments in various case laws, et cetera, they're bringing in immaterial from other laws as well. We begin to recognize that the laws don't really um, have this very distinct character where they can all be completely separated from each other. They're always interwoven. And so if you're going to understand the um, law against taking, uh, against bearing false witness, it's hard to do that without thinking about in relationship to stealing or coveting and these other aspects are always intertwined. And so I think this is one of the things that we're seeing here that the unity that of the law is manifested by love. And where there's a failure of love, there is a falling short of the whole law and a becoming guilty of all of it. Now, that also, I think, is something that calls us to a different posture relative to the law. When you think about the posture relative to the law that Jesus describes in the Pharisees, there's a complete loss of perspective. They tithe mint and anise and cumin and 
yet they forget justice, mercy, and faith, which he calls the greater matters of the law. There's a sort of pedantic fixation upon the tiniest details, and yet a loss of the fundamental spirit of the law that should undergird and be diffused throughout everything. And this, I think, is something that James has in mind here as well, that you may keep just as a matter of legal detail the law not to commit adultery. But if you have departed from that way of love, you've departed from the law in its entirety. You've become someone who's using the law in a way that is abusive. And we see that the way that the um, Pharisees and the scribes were ending up using the law as a means of oppression and not of deliverance of the people. It was the law became something that was legalistic and binding rather than something that described the way of liberty. And so the law is fulfilled with the spirit that sets us free. And the way that we act should be in the way of love and in the way of the spirit. And then the law is seen for what it really is. And then we fulfill the law. If we act otherwise, we are acting against the law itself. The law ends up serving a purpose for which it was never intended and a purpose that ends up frustrating it. The law was never intended to bring as its ultimate end death. For a period of time, it brought death. But the ultimate end is that the law describes the, as it were, the silhouette of the way of liberty. And so as we enter into the way of liberty and the way of love by the spirit, I think we fulfill the purpose of the law. And the law has nothing to say against us, as we see elsewhere in Paul and other places like that. It's interesting that in verse 11, James quotes two commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder. And those are the only two commandments that Jesus expounds with any kind of detail in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. They're also, uh, this murder and adultery are mentioned in chapter 4. There seems to be some chiastic connection here because in chapter four he's talking about murder in verse two and then he calls them an adulterous people so there's that i don't know if alster if you have any ideas about why he mentions adultery and murder other than what i just said it's it's going to be connected later on and also the sermon on the mount seems to focus on those Yes, it is an interesting question. Um, the way that Christ treats those, in both cases, he traces them back to attitudes in the heart. Um, the way that Jesus talks about adultery also pushes against the practice of the scribes and Pharisees. He talks about the way that they have, that there seems to be um, sexual immorality and love of money as specific um, setting sins of that um, denomination, as it were. And so I think that might be an issue. But do not murder, yes, beyond the fact that it is the primary commandment of the second table, um, and it's the one that Christ deals with at greatest length, in greatest detail in Matthew chapter 5. I'm not entirely sure. Um, right. 
Verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. We're back to uh, describing it. it, It's interesting the way he describes the law. It's the mature law in 125. It's the law that brings freedom or liberty also in 125. It's the royal law in verse Mm 8. And now again, we're back to the law that, that either brings freedom or establishes freedom, or you know, maybe maybe all those. I, I just have to point out once again that this is a these are notes written to a Christian congregation, uh, not so much in as an evangelistic kind of encounter with pagans, just so that they'll know their depravity and seek mercy. This is written to Christians, and uh, the law is given to us, as you said earlier. Alistair, I think it's important to recognize that the, the first use of the law is to, to, to give us, um, uh, if you will, guardrails so that we can live freely within the guardrails, um, and that breaking through the guardrails is a matter of death, falling off the precipice. It's the Chestertonian illustration of the kids on a plateau with a sheer cliff all around them. As long as they have a fence around it, they'll play freely, take the fence down, and they'll huddle up together in the center, afraid to go anywhere near the edge of the cliff. And the law functions that way for uh, Christian communities. There have been some kind of misunderstanding with these Jewish Christians on their relation to the law in general, as they're a new community that's branched off, and then their Jewish brothers and sisters have not come under the Lordship of Christ are potentially murdering Christians. But also we, we know from chapter one, there's at least hints that these Christians are tempted towards some of these things. Could this also be just him getting them in the right direction of their relationship to the law and reminding them that, I mean, that he tells them explicitly, you need to speak and act as those who are going to be judged under the, under the law. Yeah. They, they seem to think somehow that the law is justifying their behavior So they're speaking and they're acting in ways that are actually against the law, the royal law, the law of love. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to to rein them in. They're using, maybe maybe they're using the law as a cudgel. uh, It's hard to know. But also, in addition to this, I think Alistair made this point, is that this law here, of course, it's the Ten Commandments. And he, he, he references two commandments in verse 11. But it's also... The law of liberty is the law as interpreted by Jesus, mm-hmm. especially in the Sermon on the Mount. We've talked about that a number of times. It's, it just shows up all the time in the book of James. So that it's the, the, the mature law is the law as Jesus has explained it, as he's laid it out. And that appears to be what they are failing to appreciate. It's his interpretation of the law that brings liberty is his it's following his uh, instruction, his law about the law, if you will. The framing of the law in terms of God's will, I think is also something that stands out to me here. It could say it is written, do not commit adultery, but it's also written, do not murder. But the way it's expressed is for he who said, um, do not commit adultery also said that emphasis presents the law in terms of God's speech. This is what God wills of his people. 
And that emphasis upon mercy again recalls for me the statement that Jesus repeats on a number of occasions. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Go and understand this and then you'll understand the law and you would not have condemned the guilty. There's this sense that this is a hermeneutical key that people have been missing. And the more that they've focused upon the law in abstraction from justice, mercy and truth or faith, the more they've ended up with this weird, monstrous distortion of what the law should be. And yet when the law is restored and when it's understood as the royal law, the law of Christ, when it's understood as the law that God has spoken and has given in a way that's supposed to be understood with mercy and with justice and with faith and truth, then we begin to get a grip upon what its true purpose is. And that emphasis upon mercy again is something that is present at the heart of the original Beatitudes in Matthew, blessed are the merciful for they will receive, obtain mercy. And then the curses at the end that correspond to them, um, the failure to show mercy, um, this inability to perceive the weightier matters of the law and the way in which they have acted without mercy to the poor. And yet the law understood correctly should be a means of grace and liberty and mercy. That's the, the intent of the law. And to the extent that the law is not actually achieving that end, it's being frustrated and so the law in its full, true expression will be seen in liberty. And we can see the way that law has that effect. Um, often return to the example of the person who has spent time learning a musical instrument. What are the point? What is the point, the end of all the exercises that the music musician does in order to learn the instrument? They need to be governed by the law of that instrument. But in order to express that in liberty and freedom of the virtuoso who's able to play with a freedom that is given by that law, as that law has become internalized and is expressed in the liberty of a loving relationship with that instrument. And in the same way with the law of God, there is this proper relationship with the law of God that is not one of frustration and antagonism or one of mere legalistic fixation it's one that's seen in this way of freedom of mercy of liberty of love thank you again for enjoying this episode of the theopolis podcast for more information and for more content from theopolis you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com we release new articles every tuesday and thursday on our blog so you'll want to make sure to look out for those you can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.